All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast brought to you by the fine folks at ReadRothbard.com. We also run ActualAnarchy.com. This podcast is about movies from an anarcho-capitalist perspective. And with me is my co-host, Robert Johnson. How are you doing, Robert? What's up, Freedom Nerds? Back at you once again. I'm doing fantastic. And... I'm going to totally wing it this time, at least for me. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen. You know, I think some of the episodes where you do wing it are some of our best ones, so I'm looking forward to this one. I'm also also looking forward to this because it's a Valentine's Day special. So this will be the fifth episode in our rebranding, uh, and we're going to post this on Tuesday the 14th, Valentine's Day. And as it's Valentine's Day, we're bringing back our first love, our first guest, uh, Liam Cardenas. He's coming to join us to talk about the Spike Jones film, Her, which is about a guy who falls in love with an operating system. Are you there, Liam? Hey, how's it going? Hey, man, we, we love having you back. So thanks thank for you. coming on with us again. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm, glad that, um, I'm glad that we're talking about actual anarchy so I can finally talk about communism, right? <laughs> find the red and black there huh Liam oh yeah I, I love communism it's great it's it's no hierarchies that's the real oppression yeah if you if you want to go out and live in your own little commune or whatever as long as you don't bother me or anybody else I'm totally fine with that as long as it's a voluntary situation I mean it's not going to work but <laughs> you know you'll find that out in your own time that's fine okay well, anybody, well it's, uh, fine with it <laughs> yeah, um, I yeah I think that um, I think that oh sorry <clears throat> I think that um, it, communism can work on a very very small scale if it's just yourself, but that's about it. If it so. <laughs> right at the individual level, it's fine. Yeah yeah so yeah I don't I'm not a hierarchy of myself but no but in all seriousness. I just to, just to let your listeners know, I am an ANCAP. I'm not a I'm not a communist, so don't no need to hate me, no need to worry. It's too bad because I really want to get a communist on the show at some point to debate, but oh well, it'll have to wait. Well, I I could do that. I can debate the communist perspective, but I'm not gonna. Really, what's it. the difference between personal and private property? Okay, uh, let's see. Do you know? Because that's never been explained properly. Yeah. Personal property is property that does not consist of capital because when you have productive means, um, it is inefficient because, say, you have a factory and you close the factory down at 8, 8 p.m. That factory could be making cars, so that's idle resources. So 
because so communism is more efficient because when you're not using the factory, someone else can come and use it, and then we're going to be constantly producing cars instead of you just producing cars at that time. Whereas your toothbrush is a personal item, and it would be gross if you shared your toothbrush. So I guess it's different. <laughs> so I, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Grossness is the point. <laughs> yeah, you know. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I've debated. Uh, I've debated a communist who basically said that the that you don't own yourself. The only thing wrong with murder is that it's quote unquote bodily harm. So, like, I don't even know. I don't know what that's necessarily supposed to mean. But I, I then I asked him. So is getting a tattoo okay? Because you're injecting ink into your skin and that's harming your body to some extent. And he basically had no answer to that, so I, I don't know. I, I'm sure there's a smart communist out there who maybe has an answer to that question. <laughs> I that don't know if there is one, but okay. Yeah, I, I think there's like one, but he just hasn't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't that's a really good question. I mean, there's a lot of people who are communists, the intellectuals, who yeah. excelled in school in other areas. Like maybe if you took an English class with them, they might have gotten a higher grade than you, but yet they're communists. So I, yeah. I really, I don't know. I don't know how that's possible, but it, it does it does seem like there are at least a few smart ones. Oh, but they're just completely wrong. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I I'm just baffled by a lot of their arguments that seem to be it's, it, like I it's it's completely removed from reality, is what it is. It, and they just deny history and it's it's like saying it's like not the same thing to say like they always come back when you say oh what about Stalin what about Mao what about Castro and you just list all these massive millions of deaths and then right. they say oh that wasn't real communism and then you say you can't say that and then they come back at you and say oh well what about the U.S. all these bad things the U.S. has done and and then you say and then you try and say well that's not real capitalism so to speak and then they right. they, they, they try and point that out as a contradiction. But it's really not comparable. I mean, the U.S. has done nothing near. Uh, I mean, so even though it's not idealized capitalism, it's more capitalistic and it's 10 million times better than, which it, it, it does have issue, a lot of issues, but it's 10 million sure. times better than, than Mao Zedong. And the, only, it, and the only issues arise from the fact that it, from when it becomes more, so, more socialist, that's what causes the issues. So whereas when Maoist China introduces capitalistic reforms, that's actually the best part of China. So, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to it's hard to defend them. Very, they're very ignorant. <laughs> well, you did a good job. You tried. Yeah. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I've tried to get the answer for. I mean, how their their answer for the calculation problem, um, the motivation problem. And their definition of, of private property versus personal property in that who, do, who decides where that line is and what, it, I mean, our shoes means of production? They can be. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think, I think you have a really good point there. Um, I guess what maybe what the answer is is whatever the commons decides on or whatever the, the collective decides on is, is going to be considered, like there's going to be a line that has to be drawn and... They'll probably point to the fact where the non-aggression principle is in a clear line because take, for instance, 
like David Friedman brings up in Machinery of Freedom as an argument against the NAP. You have a, a, a flashlight and you shine it at your neighbor's door. That's fine. You're just shining photons at them or whatever. I'm not a physicist, but shooting photons at them, that's fine. But if you have you know, like a laser cannon and you shine that at the door, which is also shooting photons, I suppose. I, I don't really know how that works, but it's light, I guess. And or just that, higher concentration of photons, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, that is a, a, that is a violation of the NAP. So somewhere in between a flashlight and a laser cannon is a blurry line that is uh, and that where the NAP violation comes into place. And there's really no way to say exactly this amount of intensity is the is a NAP violation. So I guess the communists could say everything has blurry lines, and um, so there's a blurry line between personal and cap- property and capital. Hmm. Interesting. Daniel, do you have any input on any of this discussion? Or do you, is, is, is the phone not by your mouth right now? You know, I've, I've actually been talking, and it was on mute. So all of the good, <laughs> excellent points I had oh. in the last five minutes <laughs> lost. Dang. <laughs> yeah, so all those, yeah. All those uh, phone tones that were going on, that was my cheek hitting. Uh, probably oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm using different equipment tonight for this show, and I'm I'm, I'm sort of finding my way, stumbling through the dark, uh, <laughs> to figure out how to communicate <laughs> out to the world. Um, so, to, so to try and recap what your points were, if you could. Uh, yeah, so a few of my points were talking about the the whole property, private versus personal, and uh, how it. It can be continuum, but then the same item could be uh, one or the other, and the exact same item owned by the exact same person if if ownership is even allowed in a uh, communist society. Uh, If you use that thing to do something for someone else in exchange for anything, then all of a sudden it's a means of production. Um, Robert, you brought up shoes. I mean, shoes are certainly going to be something that uh, you're going to be more efficient at doing anything. while wearing them, so in a sense, they increase your productivity and make you know you doing something in a, a greedy, profit-seeking manner um, easier to do. And so, the the line, like like uh, Liam was saying, does seem to be ever shifting and, and moving. And then regarding the photons, um, this reminds me of an argument I was having with someone on Facebook just the other day. I was sending Robert screenshots of it. And I I won't mention the person's name, but I feel like maybe I misunderstood what he was saying, but he did bring up the Friedman argument with photons, and I I guess that's what you were saying is, uh, Liam, the flashlight versus the laser beam Mm -hmm. uh, or the laser cannon. And, I mean, I feel like that's just an academic intellectual exercise to come up with some nitpicky bullshit hole in something that uh, in – the everyday scheme of things actually works pretty well. Yeah, well, see, I think it, what, what the, the problem is, is the way, it depends on what you mean by the NAP and how you consider it. I, I should just say it instead of spelling it, the NAP. Um, it, it's because it, some people regard the NAP as just a guideline where it's just like generally this is like a good way of structuring rules, so let's just have rules that follow it. And then some people 
really have it as, view it as some sort of like, philosophical uh, like truth or uh, you know and, and so it, it just depends on kind of like your mentality and so if you're if you're looking at it from the perspective of this is gonna this is like a formula that gives you all the answers it is valuable to see if there's gray areas um, because I mean you know if there's like a if there is indeed a, if it is a true formula where you have an input or like a function, you have an input and an output. You put in a scenario, and it outputs the, the same answer every time. Um, so you say punch someone in the face with no cause. It outputs a, like violation. You say punch someone in the face if they punch you in the face and try to kill you. Then it says not violation, right? If you have like some, if you treat it like a function. Um, then really you shouldn't have edge cases um, because you, the ideally there sh it should just be clear cut and dry. I mean that's the definition of a function. A function you give it an input, it's always going to have it's going to come out with an output, and the output's going to be the same every time you put in the same input. So there's not going to be a gray area, and gonna, it's going to be continuous, and it's or as if it's a continuous function, it'll be continuous and it'll cover all cases. And if that's how you treat the NAP, then then that is a valid criticism. Whereas I think what, like someone like Stefan Kinsella, he would say, well, yeah, there's gray areas. Everything in the world has gray areas, and basically, um, it's it's a good way. This is like what this is should be the foundation for laws, but there's not always a clear cut answer that it can g give you. And then at that point, it's up to the discretion of individuals. And I guess that gets a little murky, but it just really depends. I, I, so I, I don't know. It is not really a critique against the NAP per se, but it's more about a certain interpretation of the NAP. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that, like even the photon example, you could argue that there could be someone who's affected by very low levels of photon impact, mm -hmm. uh, and the person who's shining the light of them may or may not know that they have an increased sensitivity to light. Yeah. So, I mean, is it a violation if, if they shine it at this person knowing or not knowing that this amount of photon will actually do them harm. Um, you know, like you're saying, gray area, right? Yeah, and I, mean, I think that's where voluntary, you know, and, and mar market mechanisms and organic case law or uh, common law would kind of try to solve for these types of things. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, the, it doesn't. I don't know if it necessarily matters if someone is um, more sensitive to light or not. It, I, that's a really good question. Because, like, for instance, say someone is really sensitive to sound, and I don't know if this is even a realistic scenario, but let's just say they were really sensitive to sound, and you were outside their house on, on some, like, the road next to them or something, and you're allowed to be there. You're not violating anyone's rights. And they obviously have homesteaded their home or purchased it or whatever, and they're there. They're legitimately, they were there before you. So you can't say that, and you can't say that you homesteaded your right to make a noise violation before they move there. Let's say they move there first and you, you go to the city they live in on vacation and you and then you you know, you have a loud conversation on the phone, which is normally okay. But let's say that they heard you and they're hypersensitive to noise and it really harms them. It's I, I still wouldn't say that that's an NAP violation if I think it really does come down to the common law and case law and what is the norm, what is acceptable in that area, what is reasonable regardless of kind of 
like the effect it has on them, even if it legitimately damages their eardrums, it it I personally don't think that that's an NAP violation. I'd like to know what you guys think about that though. No, I agree with is, you. But go ahead. Dan. Yeah, I mean, some someone who has that sensitive ears would probably have some form of protection uh, built know. into their house or around their ears to begin with. Uh, yeah. And if their ears are going to bleed to the point where you know they feel like they need to sue somebody or justify <laughs> self-defense shooting somebody. Uh, I think that they're going to take some steps to to mitigate that harm on their own. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I don't see any um, negligence or malintent on the person talking on the phone. And I think those are some key considerations when a, a re, when you're establishing whether or not um, there was reasonable. Um, so, well, do you think that that makes a difference in terms of the NAP uh, intention? Yeah, I think mens rea, the, the, the intent to do harm, mm-hmm. has a role. Right. Okay, yeah. Okay, so so if I go and I punch you, but I was trying to get the bug off of your face, but I missed, is that an NAP violation? I, don't I would so. say, you think it is, Daniel? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay, yeah. See, I, I agree. I, that's why we have, we have things called accidents. You know, mm-hmm. it's, so accidents aren't NAP violations. No, unless they're like due to negligence, um, then but right, it isn't punching someone line. trying to legitimately trying to punch the spider that's on their face. Even if the spider is a poisonous spider, and you're trying to kill them, right? But they didn't ask for this to happen, and they didn't want you to do it either. But you're trying to punch the spider off your face. But I mean, punching a spider is a stupid idea. You should have swatted it, right? So you're being negligent by punching them, and you're not only that but you don't even have good control over your fist because you're not a trained fighter. So you're punching them, and, um, and you accidentally punch them in the face and break their nose, and then they want to sue you. Is that not per- – you don't think they have a claim? Well, I, I think now you're just being ridiculous. Well, no, but, I mean, it's, it's, I, right, <laughs> but, like, that's, but it's, it's important to be able to consider hypotheticals. But what about the, uh, the situations with, like, drunk drivers? You would say that's negligent, right? It's an accident, but um, it's negligent, therefore, that's an NAP violation. Yeah, but, I mean, even – okay, well, let's say you're driving and you you sneeze and then you – like, you can't control that. It's a bodily function. You sneeze, you steer off the road, and you crash into someone's mailbox. Do you have to pay for that? I would say you absolutely have to pay for that. It's still an accident. You, there was okay. no intent, right? To cause harm. So that, but but then why? So, but if they can, I wouldn't force you call to that an NAP violation. Okay, so now, th- so then them forcing you to pay for it isn't is that not? If you didn't violate the NAP, then isn't them forcing you to pay for their mailbox that's broken an NAP violation? If they're going to use violence against me to force me to pay, so so you don't have to pay it. I, I, I mean, I mean, it's nice to pay, of course. I mean, I personally. Assuming I wasn't destitutely poor, I would always, if I broke someone's mailbox, I would always want to pay for it because it's a nice thing to do. Uh, obviously, we would abolish the post office, so there should be no mailboxes. But um, <laughs> Well, this is where Daniel that. would come in and say that that's why we have an insurance. Right. And why it's okay. a good idea to have insurance. I agree. Yeah, that's why you have insurance. Insurance is for accidents. Insurance is for accidents. But, that, that's, but that's a practical answer, not a right. uh, ethical not a answer. So right, not an answer, can right. you can you morally be forced? Uh, is who who so well yeah I mean it's basically the question is are you morally 
accountable for that action in terms of owing compensation. Just like if you stole someone's $100 TV, you owe them $100. You could say that that's kind of what the NAP would dictate to some extent. So I think, well, although that's actually I, mean, not I think even you'd right. actually owe them more because you've inconvenienced right. them on top well, of stealing their TV. <laughs> See, this is the NAP gets kind of fuzzy actually um, at this at this point because there's really no sense of proportion built into the NAP. There's no again, it's not like a function that outputs a clear answer into what is the proper punishment. The NAP, I mean, yeah, you want it, You want. I think you can say that the NAP is if you do something wrong, you want to make it right, whatever that means, but really it doesn't, it's not very, it doesn't help you figure out exactly how much things are worth, what someone, like, it doesn't help you answer all the questions that need to be answered when trying to serve, actually serve justice in the real world. True, like, but I don't think that the NAP necessarily has to do all of that. Uh, yeah. Isn't Walter Block's argument that the NAP is merely, when is it legitimate to use force or not? Um, yeah, isn't, that's true, but see, it, it doesn't answer that, right? Because, um, not necessarily, depending on how you interpret that. So let's say I break your TV, that's a hundred dollars. Okay. So, or I steal it or whatever. I steal your TV, it's worth a hundred dollars. How much do I owe you? I mean, I think we would all agree that you, I should be forced to pay you X, do X action of compensation to make up for the fact that I stole your TV. I think we all agree on that. And I think the NAP would back that up. But what is the appropriate amount? Is it $100? Is it, I mean, is it $90? What if you weren't going to use your TV that whole time? So maybe there should be some discount because you're not, it's not like it took away 100% of the time you would have had that TV in your house because you're not using it. So maybe you only would, I would only owe you $90. Or maybe the inconvenience is so great that I owe you $110. I mean, it doesn't give you a number. There's no mathematical formula. And it doesn't have to have a formula, well, but it's, it's an Robert, area that doesn't answer. I think Robert would argue that, that you would not be forced to pay for the TV. Okay. So if I steal your TV, what? There would uh, be nothing forcing you to, to pay it, but there would I, be repercussions. Okay. Uh, I personally would not, but I would but, say that it, it comes down to this debate whether or not you're actually – do you – does does having an accident does that create a contract between two parties? And um, because as Daniel says, no. well, as Daniel says, the contract isn't over until both parties are fully satisfied with the outcome. The contract? Did I say that? Yeah, you said that. Oh, okay. Well, I was, I, what do you mean? It's probably drunk. I'm, I'm not a legal scholar, so I'm not entirely sure what a contract actually is. Do you, what do you mean by that? Like an agreement between two people. Well, an accident doesn't form an agreement. So, wait, right, so when you, mean, you do have a contract, then, then both people must um, fulfill whatever they've agreed to. Otherwise, the contract hasn't been completed. Yes. Is so, that what you're saying, Robert? Well, I think we were getting into a discussion about if I assault you, then you could initiate violence you know, in the future because that initial assault has created a, a contract between the two people mm-hmm. and the contract isn't over until both parties are satisfied, until you're satisfied. Mm-hmm. So that gave you the right to you know, seek recompense against the, the person, initiate violence against that other person to resolve that 
you know, that dispute, that contract. Well, is it, is it, is it at that point initiatory violence if it's in response to violence initiated upon you? And then that's why you were arguing that no, it isn't because it creates a contract. Well, why does it have to have but, a contract? I don't understand. Like, so well, it's giving, it's you, giving you the moral you, right to seek, use violence to, to be compensated because yeah. Otherwise, which is what I would argue, someone violates you in some way. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have the right to go attack that person to get your value back. Like someone mm-hmm. steals your TV. You could go and steal your TV back, I suppose, but mm-hmm. you don't necessarily have the right to go over to that person, and stick a gun in his face, and punch him in the face or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would say that those things are best served by shining a light on that person by saying this person stole my TV. This person a flashlight is going to or a laser beam. <laughs> I'm saying that this person is going to suffer social ostracism as mm. a consequence to his actions. And I am okay. fully within my right to expose that person mm-hmm. and to declare everybody, hey this guy's a thief, don't do business with him, don't be friends with him. Unless you yeah. want shit stolen, this guy's whatever. And that behavior, sunlight's the best disinfectant. I think that kind of um, justice is far better served than continuing the cycle of violence. I mean, I think that is a legitimate view, and there's a lot of there is historical precedent for that. Taking, for example, in Papua New Guinea, they they had a system of anarchy, and um, this is well documented. Um, I read about it in the book Enterprise of Law by uh, Bruce Benson. And basically they had a system where there was no government, but there were these kind of community leaders called, I, I don't know how if I'm saying this right, but it was called Tanawi. T- I don't know how you say it. I think it's Tanawi. And the Tanawi basically were like arbitrators. And what would happen is if you did something wrong, you would go to the Tanawi and you'd, ple- you'd sh- show your case and the Tanawi would decide and, and would like issue a verdict. And um, so usually if you, like if I stole your chicken then I have to give you a, I don't know, like a, a radish or something in, in compensation, I don't know, like a bundle, 10 bundles of radishes. I don't know what they, what they ate. Do you, in, do you know there. if this is a voluntary? Thing? Yes, this is a voluntary, so, yes. So, so, so if I stole your chicken mm-hmm. and okay. you came to me and said, hey, we need to go to this arbitrator, mm-hmm. and I'd say, well, I don't want to go to no arbitrator. I don't, I yeah. don't, believe, I don't trust that arbitrator. That arbitrator is crap, mm-hmm. so I'm not going. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, what, what's, the, what's the situation then? Do you just so, expose me for my, my chicken stealing, well, or do you okay. initiate yeah. violence against me? So there's a bunch of these arbitrators called Tanawis. They're not really arbitrators. Well, they are. It's a kind of a weird word to use for them, but um, they're they're like leaders of the community, but they're voluntarily elected. So if there's like a prominent person in the community, then people will pledge their support to the Tanawi and usually give some sort of payment of of basically whatever's within their means and promise that in in chance of a conflict, they're going to back up what the Tanawi decides. They voluntarily enter this. They can choose from any of the Tanawis in any of the tribes. And there's like also different levels of Tanawis, like within the family and within the the town and the region. Oh, there's a bunch of them. And you can pledge support, I think, to multiple Tanawis. I'm not entirely sure about that. So you, you have these Tanawis, and, and people pledge support to them. And so 
if, there, if I have an issue, I'm going to go to my Tanawi, and if you have an issue, you, you can go to your Tanawi, and I, I don't exactly know. I think in that case, if we go to different Tanawis, they'll defer to another Tanawi. Mm. Uh, otherwise, we will prob- most likely, if we're in the same town, we might have the same Tanawi. So we've already agreed to basically follow the judgment of this Tanawi. Um, and so th- we go to the Tanawi with our conflict, and the Tanawi will hear the evidence um, and to, to the townspeople, to everyone, and basically, this, and this is, again, this is old. This is olden times. There's no technology there. Um, so this is very low tech. And so they go and in front of the whole town. The Tanawi will look on evidence, interview people, and basically make a verdict and say, okay, well, you stole his chicken. Um, there's a witness and blah, blah, blah. So you give him 10 bundles of radishes and compensation. And so you have to agree to do that. Now, if you decide not to do that, then the punishment is that um, basically ostracism, and that's the main that's the main punishment. And they'll just kick you out of the community, and and everyone has agreed. They pledged their support to the Tanawi, so they have agreed to basically not do business with you, not associate with you, not talk to you. And that was the greatest form of punishment, and that actually really worked. It was very, very, very rare that there was actually physical. Um, punishments like oh you're going to be like beaten or killed or something and I think there may, I, and if I remember correctly they did have physical punishment but the physical punishment was optional if you wanted like a lighter sentence in some cases you could opt for physical punishment instead in other regards but it was never forced or at least very rarely forced upon so it's basically exactly like the system or not exactly but very similar to the system you're proposing and um I think that's also similar to what someone like Bob Murphy would advocate for as well. Interesting. Kind of like a, well, kind of like people. Hey, eventually, we're we're going to talk about the film Her, right? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> if we get around to it. Jeez, enough with your hierarchy. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So I did want to bring up one other thing. We were talking about the photons and the sound mm-hmm. um, in the in the book The Iron Web by Larkin Rose the federal agents that are um, uh, sieging the the people in the, the little community there, uh, the suspected terrorists, they use large speakers to direct sound at them to uh, to harm them. Uh, do you recall this, Robert, or have you not read that yet? No, I haven't, but I am aware of, I forget the name of the company that makes them, but there are... Um, very effective uh, sound, sound cannon weapons, thing. sound cannons that, that the police across the country are using to disrupt riots and um, the military use to disable their enemies. And yeah, it, 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 it's such a high volume or it's a very, I don't know what frequency it is, but it, yeah, it makes you like nauseous and just, you just make yeah, it so get out of that way. Yeah, absolutely. So it'd be like the, the brown note. Is that is that it is? I don't, what it is? I don't think it weapon? just makes you shit your pants. I think it's a lot worse than that. But is that real? Is that the brown note? Is that, is that a real thing? I don't know. I think it's an urban legend, but but uh, it sounds like what they'd be trying to go for. Yeah, sound weapon. That doesn't seem like a real thing. But if it was, that would be pretty awesome. Somebody out there looking for it right now. <laughs> 
So, Daniel, do you want to get into this film movie thing? And yeah, I want to. I want to get into her. Yeah, I bet you do. (laughs) Play on the words. Uh, Sorry, wife. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, her is a I think 2013 movie by Spike Jones, starring Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, He's a lonely dude going through a divorce or a breakup with his um, with his wife, and he ends up uh, seeking uh, some kind of companionship and ends up with an operating system that is very personable with him, and he ends up falling in love with the operating system. And that's pretty much the whole plot of the film. Uh, the operating <laughs> system is, is created so that it can evolve and learn from its own experiences. And at some point along in the film, the operating system sort of uh, grows beyond the, uh, I guess, you know, for lack of a better word, the utility of, of working with him still and decides that, you know, she can move on to do something else, whatever that happens to be. Um, it's sort of left to the imagination, I think, at the end there. Yeah, um, maybe just a little more context is that this is a world where everything is the exact same except that the phones are worse and that there is artificial intelligence that is as smart as humans. And so they and just like the operating system, you didn't really give the background on it. Basically, in the beginning of the movie, there's an ad saying, hey, there's a new operating system called OS1. And this operating system is like a personal assistant. It's like, it's a smart, it, it'll be your friend. and it'll, It's just as smart as you. It'll do everything you want to. It's the revolutionary new operating system. And for some reason, no other technology has advanced, but for some reason they can do that. And um, yeah, and basically that, and then maybe skipping ahead towards the end of what you referenced. It's basically, are, is, is, are the um, old Reed Rothbard archives still up? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you go back to the Reed Rothbard episode that I was on, where we talked about artificial intelligence as well, we did talk about hyperintelligence, and hyperintelligence is where an artificial intelligence is more intelligent than a human. Um, and we can talk more about that again if we want. But um, basically, yeah. So the idea was that the artificial intelligence started as just an operating system, very basic operating system with, with just like really good voice command capabilities. Just think about Siri, if, if Siri was just as good as a secretary, like a, a real secretary. And then over time, the the basically it developed into a hyper intelligence that was way smarter, way more capable than a human and somehow disappeared at the end of the movie, which didn't really make sense. So that was an episode about her. (laughs) What? What what are are some of the themes that we can discuss guys? Because I haven't seen this movie, so I'm really just kind of a passenger on this train. But, so, so, okay. One, okay. So I want to, so I have like several, thought experiments we can do. I think the first thought experiment was an observation I made is, so this guy's job was to write letters. And this guy would write love letters from people to other people. Like they would be like, like he worked for an agency who did handwritten letters and he had like this dictation software that I guess analyzed their handwriting or something. And then he would just 
say like, dear Penelope, the first time I saw you, it was amazing, and blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, just he, he would dictate it to this computer and the, the computer would just kind of handwrite the, the letter and then they would send that, they would sell it. It was a service. Now it's his job. So one funny thing is I was like, I was thinking this, this artificial intelligence technology is so advanced. It, it, it's, it can like understand human emotions lit, quite literally. I mean, it, and it can even like have sex and weird things that robots should not be able to do, which we did talk about in the Reed Rothbard episode as well. People should really go listen to that because these movies are actually quite similar, except this one's worse. Um, but, <laughs> but um, anyways, so he's doing this basically remedial job, and these these are like super intelligent art. OSs, so I'm really wondering why his job is not automated. Um, I mean, these operating systems are literally as capable as humans mentally, if actually more capable. So, what this really, what really comes to mind is just is the argument, um, basically for a universal basic income, or even for like something like communism or a resource-based economy. With, as Peter Joseph might say, the zeitgeist, where basically people are saying, look, we're going to have these robots that can do all kinds of stuff. We're going we're to have all this automation and technology, and it's going to automate away people's jobs. And say we did have these robots that are super intelligent, hyper-intelligent even, um, what is the implication going to be for humanity? And, uh, I mean... Getting a robot exactly like the like they have in this movie is pretty unrealistic, but let's just for a thought experiment say, what's going to happen? Will we? What's going to happen when we um, have really good AI? I mean, 20 years from now, when all the trucking jobs, all the grocery grocery store jobs, all the uh, restaurant service jobs, cooking jobs, all that stuff, when that's automated when all phone support is automated, all, I mean, all these jobs um, that are currently done by humans are, are done by computers. What are the implications for that? Are we going to need a government to step in and give us um, welfare? Or are we going to have things to do still? These are all questions that yeah, are um, important. Communists have been making this argument for a long time that uh, look at all this amazing technology. Capitalism is clearly obsolete we don't need people anymore um to innovate anymore so my answer would be that we don't know what the future is going to bring we don't know what people are going to do and innovate beyond i mean um to say that i mean we're not going to have jobs uh, that's fantastic i mean so all these (laughs) things that we would normally be doing like wasting, you know, menial jobs and whatever are going to be replaced by robots. Fantastic. That frees up labor to do other new fantastic things that they're going to innovate and create and cre- that people are going to enjoy. I mean, maybe we become more of a entertainment-based, you know, economy or right. – I mean, California is already, what, one of the biggest economies in the world, and they're mainly entertainment-based. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that It's because – I mean, it's easy to look at it and just like statically take everything, just take a snapshot of the economy and just imagine, okay, so now imagine that all of these people are unemployed and robots are doing their jobs. Everything else is the same. It's really easy to just do that 
naive snapshot. But the problem is that there's other implications of that automation. If we had robots, and, they, and I, I talked about this in the last episode that I was on, where I, I'm saying that the robots aren't necessarily going to be like our slaves, and it, they would, if they had intelligence of, of their own, they're going to be economic actors, and they're going to have human action, or robot intelligent action, and so that's not necessarily... But let's just say that they did work for us, and they did exactly what we said. Um, I mean, think about the cost. Think about, basically, the increased production that that would cause, and basically and the lowering of cost, the closer to abundance that we would be. Mm-hmm. Um, things, goods would be much more abundant. Services would be much more abundant. It would be take much less. It would take much less labor of a human to basically be able to afford all of the things that we need. So you could do an arts degree or whatever, which maybe now doesn't necessarily pay the bills, but then it will. I mean, just think about the fact that we have like all these people getting PhDs and graduate degrees and all that stuff. You're even just going to college. I mean. We go to school until we're 18, go to college until we're 22, go to grad school until we're 30 or so. I mean, depends, 20-something. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's like a quarter of your life. Just kind of yeah. – and also, these, these education systems aren't even efficient. You're not even really learning very much this whole time. I mean, right. we're, and we're just kind of like just chilling, <laughs> like, you know, like living at our parents' house in our 20s type of thing. I mean, I mean, look, it used to be that 9-year-olds, even 8-year-olds worked in the fields. You know, mm-hmm. and it was just okay. Yeah. You're you're eight years old. Here's your whatever your I don't know what farming tools are. See that's how, see this is how spoiled sure. I don't even know any farming <laughs> tools. You know, a plow. Here's your plow. Go plow the field. Eight year old. Like now we just are basically big babies, and it's a great thing. And we can yeah. go and and you know waste our time like talking about like you know movies on the internet. You know, we're not doing labor. We're we're doing things that we love to do. Like this is awesome. You know what I mean? We could watch the movie Her, a movie about robots that can fall in love with people and stuff like that. Like, that's crazy, like, from a historical perspective. So just think about, take this trend of us basically doing whatever we want for 20 years and make that 40 years. Yeah. Yeah, this this vast wealth that's generated uh, just allows us to be so decadent that yeah. was really yeah. only allowed to uh, a very small portion of society, you know, hundreds of years ago. Absolutely. Or even to some extent. Yeah. 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 And I was, I was um, talking with uh, my aunt who was, we were talking about automation and she said, well, we were talking about self-driving cars, Tesla, now self-drives and all that. And mm-hmm. we were talking about trucking, like imagine just the, the lower cost of food that that's going to bring. Like, it's amazing. Like, all food is transported on trucks and just goods and services. And when all the warehouses and the trucks are all robots, think about how much cheaper that we don't have to pay labor. We don't have to do all this employment costs with, like, you know, Social Security and all this regulatory insurance compliance, all that stuff. It's all, all that cost will go, be completely che- way cheaper. Think of how much cheaper things are going to be. And she said, oh, yeah, that's good, but we need to balance that with, kind of getting transitionary jobs for these people who are currently, you know, working in these replaceable jobs. But my point to her was how many people work in trucking? How many people work? I mean, I mean, it's not that much of the, it's not that big of a portion of the population relative to the amount of people who used to work in farming, which was over 90% at one point. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, farming technology has 
pro, like has basically um, yeah, what's the percentage of farmers now? It's like one or two percent or something exactly. like that. It's very tiny. Yeah, and we're doing better things, you know. We're, I, I mean, it's. Yeah, yeah you don't see people cr- the crying that they're the fact that they're not bending over backward, you know, in a, in a field somewhere right now. <laughs> like, oh, where yeah. are all our where are all our sweet labor farm labor jobs? <laughs> I know. Seriously. Damn these tractors. <laughs> Seriously. It's, yeah, well, I mean, to part of your point, Liam, like yeah. every generation assumes that they're at the pinnacle of society. And, and like Robert said, we can't know what the future is going to hold. So, like, yeah. what did all the truckers who have jobs right now transporting all these goods and things, um, what did they replace? You know, mm-hmm. and, and when those – Right, the uh, carriages. Right. When those people were, were being replaced by trucks, mm-hmm. you know, where people worried about, oh, we're, we're automating this, these these – giant machines are going to transport products at 80 miles an hour on a highway. Uh, what are we all going to do? You know, what jobs are we going to have? But we just continue to uh, be able to have our labor and, and other time freed up to pursue other interests and other things and grow even beyond. You know, the example yeah. you just brought up of the farmers, you know, like 90% of the people used to be farmers. Well, now yeah. it's like one or two. Uh, so, you know, we found something else to do. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting that even trucking itself is a form of automation that overtook something before. But and, and then the other thing we have to keep in mind is that not only did trucking replace horse and carriage or whatever, or I guess they had railroads before trucking, but see, even railroads replaced stuff. Um, it, it's like it not only did it replace, it actually made possible things that were not possible before, like getting oranges from Florida in, like, I don't know, maybe maybe this is not even factual, but, like, say, Chicago in the winter, you might not have oranges if you had to use a horse to go to ship the oranges. And you're not going to use your horses to even do that because you have more valuable things to transport. Or even if you did, they might not be able to do it fast enough. The oranges might rot. So, like, with modern transportation... We can have oranges in Chicago in the winter. So, yeah, yeah, it, it opens up a world of possibilities. There's no way of predicting. It's really impossible to predict what's going to happen. Yeah, um, so even if we do have uh, even further automation, removing these menial jobs that, that you know, a lot of people do and mm-hmm. are worried about losing, um, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that they're – those people aren't going to exist. They're going to still exist and they're going to seek their best interest and uh, try to do things that, you know, uh, allow them to, to continue to grow and do something yeah. productive. I mean, most of those, and I'm speaking for them in a very general sense, but I would imagine that a lot of people in those types of positions where they're doing menial type stuff really don't enjoy doing it. They're just doing it because they have to. But yeah. There's really no other option. Um, so if that job is now automated, I mean, I've been in one of these um, newer Amazon warehouses, mm. and they still have a lot of people in them. But the way that they uh, manage the inventory and move it around is on these robots, mm. uh, these little, like, um, like RC car type deals that can lift up these huge racks of goods. And rather than having uh, somebody go down aisles of a traditional warehouse to go and pick uh, an item out of a certain bin location, they'll bring that whole rack to the individual human picker and and 
like color code, like you need to select from bin C9, and the person will go and grab, you know, however many items out of that one. And then once they've done that, that bin will go away, and the next bin will come up. <laughs> so it it supremely increases the efficiency of each individual who's doing any work. You know, so like all this capital expenditure that's been put into this warehouse makes them hyper efficient and makes their labor pool need to be even smaller than it was before, making each worker more productive and they can pay them more wages uh, because, you know, it's all based on their marginal productivity, right? Like if you gave everyone like a shovel and said, all right, go till the field, you're not going to pay them very much. It's going to take them forever, even if you have 100 people doing it. Or you can buy a piece of equipment that does it in a day, you know, and, you and, have and one, guy drive one, it. one guy drive it. Yeah, exactly. And then, but then I guess the comeback to that is like, yeah, it's only one guy. So what about the other 99 guys? What, they what are they going to do? They can, all go do <laughs> they can all go do something else. Yeah. Okay. But, it sounds cold hearted, but do you want to be just sitting around in the field all day? You know, I, 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 I think I just actually changed my mind on this issue. I, I think that the people have a point. I mean, think about, think about this. If we have automation and now people don't have to work like, you know, jobs, they can just kind of, they can do less work and get more, more reward. We're all richer. Think about all the social justice warriors that will be enabled by this. I mean, that's pretty terrible. Think about it. Well, that that's a very good point because I mean you didn't hear about protests in the 1700s because <laughs> they were all scratching by, uh, you know, scarcity. Didn't have time for that shit. <laughs> yeah, didn't have time to worry about that shit. And and so yes, I think that there is a certain degree of as prosperity is spread. Uh, Wait, that was a joke, people, right? That was a joke, right? Like there were protests, right? Like no, there there were there were I mean. The American Revolution was in the 1700s. Yeah, but you didn't have them like chanting and wearing pussy hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. You know, I see what you're saying. I mean, there, the were, there weren't like special snowflake, like, like people were like, it was real issues. You didn't have time to quibble over just like assuming someone's gender and stuff like that. Right, right. And, and those are all byproducts of, of their other needs being met. You know, by yeah. the very system that they're right. denouncing. They have the luxury. Yeah. Absolutely. They have the luxury but, to be offended by trivial bullshit. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, that, and, but that's also why I just don't even let, like, a lot of people were really outraged over social justice warriors. And I just really, it doesn't bother me very much. It, it used to, but at this point, I just see it as just like, it, I just feel like it's not worth our time being, you know, bothered by it. I mean, if they're doing something really bad, then okay, but usually they're just being annoying and dumb. And, it, like, if you see, like, a five-year-old throw a temper tantrum, you just think, you don't think, oh, that five-year-old, uh, like, terrible five-year-old, I hate that person. You know, you think, oh, it's a child. It's just a immature, right. like, they, yeah, okay, they wanted the lollipop, but they didn't get the lollipop, you know? But when you, so we just have to really understand that these social justice warriors are just kind of, like, they just have really cushy lives and they think that they know what struggle is and they, they want to like be like what is glorified in the movies or something where they see people actually going through struggles and then they identify with that. I don't, I don't know what the psychology of it is per se, but they're basically just big children and I just 
kind of look at it as, you know, they're so privileged when they when they're telling me about suffering and stuff, like because I called them him or her or something along those lines. I just I just kind of ignore it, just like the way if a child tells me that I'm a meanie pants because I did not give him or her a lollipop, I'm not gonna let that get to me. So I I just don't I, I don't get annoyed by it anymore. What yeah, about I, I when just find they, a, uh, a lot of humor in it? I think that they're hilarious with their hypocrisy, yeah. uh, especially like you just said. They uh, they are in a position where all of their needs are being met, and so they have the privilege mm-hmm. to be able to protest and whine about these things, and and then claim that uh, I have like quote unquote male or white privilege when they're yeah. the ones who actually have the privilege to be able to even complain about these things to begin with. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's bizarre. I mean, it's really bizarre. Like, just kind of things that they say. It's like, I mean, it's it's just so, just what they're they're worried about is so dumb relative to what the kind of stuff we talk about. Like, I don't know, we're against the war in Syria, you know? Like, you know, children dying, being bombed and killed and raped, being sold into sex slavery and, you know, just like t- toppling of nations, you know? We're, you know, we're talking about this and then they're, they're just, upset about not having enough like co-ed bathrooms or whatever or like enough gender studies departments and then it's just really there comes a point where in my opinion you just have to just say just acknowledge that they're they're like like I just think a lot of people get really mad when they're called when social justice warriors call them racist or sexist or whatever homophobic or xenophobic or whatever the, the slur they use People get really upset by that, and I just I just don't get upset by it because it, to me it's just it's just so it's, it's so dumb the fact that like I'm like they're the ones who are just standing by while people are getting slaughtered in the world and not saying anything like I don't feel like I need to respond to what they have to say I, or that any of their words have any effect on me because I, I, it's just so apparently true that we have the right position here. And they are just crazy. So it's yeah, I think if they if they call you a, a racist, homophobe because of something you've said that's factual or concerning, you know, like that it doesn't matter whether you call them G or J or whatever, hmm. uh, it should be a badge of honor because it, it it's basically conceding that they have no argument if they're yeah. going to resort to name calling. Yeah. Yeah, I do and, find it concerning though how open and how supportive they are of aggression mm-hmm. and their willingness to riot and destroy property. I mean, not to collectivize them all so much, but I saw a lot of lefties mm-hmm. defending the anti protests in Berkeley recently and talking about how Milo Yiannopoulos was this bigot and he clearly didn't deserve to have his hate speech, whatever mm-hmm. that is. Yeah, but you know, yeah, I kind of like that though. Like, uh, I, I kind of like that they're doing that because you it's, like that they're, they're advocating they're, violence. N- well, yeah, because it, it's, it's very. I mean, I don't like that the violence is occurring. I'm not a fan of violence, but the fact that they are actually going there, ideologically, the fact that like, I mean, argument. because yeah, yeah, basically, <laughs> it just completely discredits them in the eyes of anyone reasonable, and that's really what we need. We need to just. Like, I, I like radical extremists, you know, because you can cut the bullshit. 
Like, mm-hmm. you know, like you can just kind of say, like, no, we just like these policies. Like, they're just good because, you know, people have health care if we just have, like, you know, Obamacare. And, like, you know, you can, like, have all these little arguments. But it's all a bunch of bullshit. They just want to do violence. And our job as libertarians is we're trying to say, no, you guys are violent sociopaths for coming mm-hmm. and trying to control society. And they, I mean, so these protests, when they're actually being overtly violent instead of, like, you know, like hiding behind the mechanisms of government, I, I feel like it, it's, more, it's, it's more straightforward and people see it and then they're like, these guys are lunatics. I don't want to associate them with them. Um, I, I, I need to find someone more reasonable who's level-headed and not doing these crazy things. So I think it really yeah, works in their favor. It brings it's them into the light. It brings them into the photon stream. It's true. Yeah. Um, I did think it was interesting. You know, um, I, I I watch, I, I visit like Kotaku, which is a Gawker website, which is notoriously lefty. And I noticed they were incredibly silent. They normally have all kinds of viewpoints when it comes to anything positive-ish they, they think is lefty. But when there was the, the Antifa protest, they were notoriously silent. Like, no, we're not, we're not those guys. Yeah, you are. Yeah. But they're all about punching Nazis, and Richard Spencer was fantastic. <laughs> you, you know, one thing that's funny about that, though, is all these alt-right people who are getting really, really upset about the fact that, that the Antifas are punching um, Richard Spencer or it just in general, like, it's okay to punch a fascist. It's that whole line of argument. The fact that the alt-right is upset about that is honestly, it's, it's hilarious because the whole, like, I mean, are you guys aware of this whole helicopter thing? The like, Pinochet thing? Like, yeah, basically the, the idea where it's, it's saying communists aren't people, like, like these basically these leftists aren't people, so we're allowed to do aggression on them, and that's why what Trump is doing is fine, because all these, you know, all these immigrants, they're all socialists, and they're coming in this country and voting for Democrats, so it's okay to, you know, deport them or whatever. It's okay to use aggression upon them, because they're basically they don't have they don't have rights because they don't accept our Western way of doing things, and that's that's the under, that's, a, that's a huge um, component of what alt right people are advocating for. And then when someone uses that same exact logic, saying, "Oh well, fascists are violent, so we could be violent against them," it's self defense. When when they do that on them, now they get all outraged. So it's really hypocritical, in my opinion. Now, from a libertarian perspective, I say, "Hey, don't punch the Nazi." Or he's not really a Nazi, but whatever. I don't know what he is. I don't. I don't right, like him right. very much. But don't punch this guy, and don't deport these people. I mean, I don't know where you guys stand on that, but I just say, hey, don't use aggression in general. So for me, I'm not being hypocritical in opposing the punching, but I think it's funny that some people who are advocating for throwing communists out of helicopters, so to speak, are <laughs> are mad about the punching of a current. Right. It just shows you that there's no principle at play. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I see I see the helicopter thing um, thrown around on Facebook a little bit, especially in a group that Liam, you and I are a part of. But mm-hmm. I always think that they're referring to it in a joking fashion, not no. in a literal fashion. Well, some people are, but mostly, well, a lot of people are serious about it. They're very serious. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I wouldn't. I don't know if it's most. I, I just know. Yeah, but it is a serious thing, and. Um, I mean that's I mean that's kind of like what Molyneux's position is now. It's definitely what yep. Cantwell, Chris, Christopher Cantwell's position is now. Is hey let's like let's use. I mean did you guys see that YouTube video 
where um, Molyneux basically said the time, uh, maybe the time for arguments is now over. Um, did you see that one? Was that the one where you're talking about the Berkeley, or was he? Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw that one. Yeah, it, and I stopped watching him after the the Libertarian Breakup video last like November, December. Yeah, uh, but I, I do I, recall hearing about this other one. Yeah, I I stopped watching him as soon as he started being a Trump fanboy. Um, I mean, I, look, I I think it's fine. Libertarians for Trump is fine. Like Walter Block's position on Trump, is, I think it's I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but I mean, I personally don't don't I'm not a libertarian for Trump, but I, I think it, there's an argument to be made there. But Molyneux is really just kind of gone off the bandwagon. I mean, he's gone off bandwagon, gone off the wagon. But he he's he's just gone crazy in his support for Trump, and and just some of the things he says, I just. I just don't even. It's so detached from reality, in my opinion. It's crazy. Like, yeah, like I think he, it's dangerous when you're going to hit your wagon to a mass murderer. Yeah, he wasn't but, a mass murderer yet, but now he is. So, yeah, you know he's going to go on to do horrible things. So, when you go to advocate for the guy, you you're putting yourself in a very precarious situation. I mean, I just think it's this is like very convoluted reasoning behind like these Donald Trump uh, apologists. And I really see when I really see that it is driving people away from libertarianism. I've seen it too many times where people who were libertarianism are literally renouncing their libertarianism label and saying, no, I, I think that I still believe in like small government, but I'm not a libertarian anymore. I think that, and, and for some reason there's this, there's this like, stereotype going around where it's saying that all libertarians against Trump are left libertarians or even bleeding heart libertarians. And I mean, that's obviously not true. I wouldn't consider myself a left libertarian, but I'm definitely against Trump. I'm a, I am for open borders. I'm for free trade. I'm for all these things. But there's just like this bleeding heart stereotype where they just, they're so against the kind of Jeffrey Tucker-esque person that it just drives them away from libertarianism. And I honestly don't get it. I don't. I don't. I. I have no idea how this happened, but it really is a problem. The libertarian movement needs to address this because, because we're bleeding numbers. We're not growing, in my opinion, and a lot of people are leaving. I definitely tend to agree. I think a lot of libertarians have moved over this kind of alt-right situation. Um, we probably had our strongest moment with Ron Paul, and mm-hmm. we've grown a bit from that. But yeah, we might be. We might be bleeding a bit, especially when we put up candidates like Larry, uh, Gary Johnson, who, I, in my opinion, is not a libertarian at all. So Yeah, uh, yeah. I agree. I and then, really and then you've got guys like, like Steph going like totally opposite of uh, libertarianism to begin with. You know, he's supposed to be this anarchist, yeah. believer in the Absolutely. NAP and morality and, and argumentation, mm-hmm. and uh, he's all about the Trump train, which is yeah. ridiculous, and, and, and now he's advocating violence. I, I heard that he walked it back in the, in the follow-up video oh. after that. Yeah, he got, a lot of, he got a lot of negative feedback from it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That just shows where his mind is at. I, I mean, he ultimately, he is like, he just panders to whatever. I mean, that's why I think he jumped on the Trump train. Is he's just pandering to what got the most views and... This got the most views, yeah. and now people people like to think that they're principled. I think so. When when you literally say we're abandoning our principles, people are going to push back. But 
but he could kind of just do everything but say it and just kind of have that ideological shift and just kind of imply it, and I think everyone would be fine with it. But it's well, just, he always sold himself on, on being principled, you know? He what? So that was one of the, he sold himself yeah. on being principled, like that yeah. was his whole shtick. And yeah. to have him shift so far, uh, that's, that's what killed it for me. Yeah. I mean, it's bizarre. Like, I, I, on, I, I can't watch his videos anymore. They're just so boring. And, I mean, maybe that's also just because I've kind of watched him for years and just kind of got old. But it really just, uh, yeah, I, 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 don't, I can't stand the guy, honestly. Yeah, uh, I'm where you're at. I, I really enjoyed him in, in my beginning formational thought with libertarianism, but yeah, yeah, more and more, I, I I rarely listen to him anymore, and usually only when it's a specific thing happens or there's a particularly interesting guest or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't want to detract from some of his previous work. Like Everyday Anarchy is a great mm-hmm. book, and mm-hmm. uh, what's the other one? It's uh, Practical Anarchy. Is that right? Yeah, I never Sounds read right. those books, but um, yeah, th- those are the names of them. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, I, I really liked. He had like really good episodes on um, like peaceful parenting or like stuff. So I'm a fan of that. Um, and yeah, he's had some really good videos over the years for sure. But I, I really don't. I think it's really easy. I personally just don't cut him any slack. I, I think, okay, you've done good things in the past, but that doesn't, I mean, I'm sure every murderer, the first time they murder someone, they, <laughs> until that point, they didn't murder anyone, so they get their right. person, right? So let's just talk about all that. Well, no, they, mur- I mean, obviously he didn't murder anyone, but you get the point. Like, I, I, I think he's always been a very conceited person, a very self-absorbed, and I, I used to defend him on the whole, uh, on just kind of his personality, but I really see that the way he interviews people and the way he talks to people is dishonest. And he, I don't know, it's just his attitude. It's really what it is. And, and just like he just goes around just saying like, I, my viewpoint is based on evidence and blah, blah, blah. And Reason and it's, evidence. It's Reason really, evidence. it just seems really pretentious to me. And I, I, oh, yeah. I, I think that he has, I mean, yeah, he may have had some good books, but Overall, I think his intellectual career has been a failure. He developed universally preferable behavior. That was utterly rejected by the libertarian community. Um, he, I mean, he's really just not taken seriously. Any, I mean, no, I've never seen people, any like academically inclined libertarians really reference him as any point of, for any point of um like reference for any of their like academic research or in any books or any talks like, Oh, Stefan Molyneux makes this great point. I really rarely see that. And not, not that that's too important, but it really just shows that he's had a very, very small impact on libertarian thought. And he calls himself a philosopher, but he's really not because he hasn't contributed anything to the philosophy of libertarianism. I mean, he has a little, but not very much. Um, I actually like the label of philosophy. I think that's a cool way to label yourself. But honestly, he's an entertainer. That's what he is. Right. And yeah, he's more. I think of more of as like a pop philosopher. He's a yeah. He he has a personality, and I think a lot of people are drawn to his personality. Sometimes people need things in their lives, and I know I really don't want to over psychoanalyze people, but um, there's two types of people who I think listen or watch his videos and listen to him. 
are one, it's like liber new libertarians who come across his videos because he has some of the he has the most content of anyone on YouTube for libertarian stuff. That's how that's the camp I fell in, and I, I mm -hmm. learned a lot because he pre presented other people's ideas really well in a very entertaining fashion, and he kind of has that attitude where you you listen to him and you think, oh, this guy's right. He's so sharp and like he knows he knows all the answers and like it, he just, he comes off very confident. And so you really trust him as a source, and I've found great pleasure, and I've learned a lot from his videos. But um, so there's that, and then there's the kind of person who comes across his channel, and they, they, they have some sort of void in their life, and I think that his personality attracts them, and they basically kind of just fall in line behind him. Um, so, yeah, so there is that kind of cultish element that people reference, but... I, don't, I wouldn't call him a cult leader simply because that seems extreme. But he def he definitely he definitely is he he won't admit that he's wrong and he'll be a dick to anyone who challenges him. I mean I've talked to him before and he was he was definitely a dick to me and I at the time I thought nothing of it. Um, I thought oh that's kind of unfortunate. He was just probably upset for some reason that day or something. But so um, you, you did a call in to his show? No, it wasn't on his show. It was in it was a Liberty Me stream uh, Jeffrey Tucker's website Stefan came on we talked about uh, abortion and basically I mean at the end of that he just couldn't help it but say, help saying like well I don't know um, it seems like you've never been a parent like you know, like he like like attacking me personally like for just basically I was just reciting Rothbard's stance on on um, on abortion and I wasn't even necessarily endorsing it I was just like relaying Rothbard's perspective and then he was giving like these metaphors and I all I was saying was uh, no I don't agree with the metaphor that metaphor is misapplied um, the way you're presenting it, it it just doesn't make sense and he got very irritated um, and I mean that that again I still watched him after that I still liked him after that but that was maybe the first moment that I realized that hey when he's kind of like shutting people down in this way Usually, people who I disagree with, I just I'm just so tempted to think, oh, that's fine. I disagree with them. These people are like socialists or whatever, so they're wrong. It's okay that he he's intellectually basically grandstanding and not and really diverting the issue and attacking their like their background and having like th this air of, of like just he just he just a very air of arrogance. And um, but o over time since then and over time I've just really realized that I just don't think that's very he's not he just doesn't seem intellectually honest to me and that's really the that's really my criticism of him and yeah, yeah the stuff I, is Trump yeah the stuff is right and just like you said the way he treats um, any kind of criticism he yeah. acts like I, I, referencing his breaking up video with libertarians mm -hmm. it came off as very kind of pissy and yeah. whiny <laughs> so, yeah, and, and the way he talks to his, his callers, he can be, like you said, he could be a dick. And, yeah, it's just love, yeah, and, uh, like grandstanding. And, and one of the things that I've heard him say, and this is probably the thing that bothered me the most of what of some of the things that he said, is in that Breaking Up with Libertarians video, I think it was in that video, he's talking about how basically he said two things. One of them was that if people are not going to like respect a free society they're not going to help you build a free society 
that you that they don't deserve rights essentially he said he basically was making the point that like you know if, if you have to earn the right to be protected under the nap and all that we don't if you you have to participate in the system in order to get afford those protections and then simultaneously he made this point where basically this weird fact that just can't it's just to me these two weird factors just seem ridiculous to me one is he said that the average IQ of people in the Middle East is like is IQ of 90, which is lower lower than average. And then he also said that people with IQs that low are incapable of living in a free society and having yeah. democracy and doing that. So basically, what he's saying is that Middle Eastern people are incapable of living in a free society and yep. that they don't deserve they don't have rights because they, because of that fact. And that's just I mean that, like, and like the fact that, like, and, and you know, in the way he argues these things, is he like, you have to go back. I, I don't remember this clip too clearly, but I think people should go back and watch that. He, he gives like points of evidence, but the evidence does not at all support his claims. Like, he, like he'll just give like some historic example, like, look at the IQ in Japan and Germany. They are they have high IQs, and look how well they did after recovering from destruction. Whereas looking in somewhere else. Look at how this like like that doesn't prove what the conclusion you just said, and it's just like he would give basically no justification, no evidence, no real evidence for his claims, and then he pulls these bizarre and quite frankly insulting and terrible conclusions, saying that these people are subhuman essentially and don't deserve rights. I mean, maybe that's a slight exaggeration of what he said, but I honestly don't think so. I think that that's kind of what he was saying. Well, he also made some really strange claims. Um, he was referencing the policing going on in St. Louis. Yeah. And he said that it was libertarians' fault. Libertarians had blood on their hands because they didn't publicly support the cops and because the it's cops ridiculous. all of a sudden need public support in order to do their jobs. Yeah. It was like, what? What? It's my fault that I don't publicly support cops, so that's why there are dead people in St. Louis now because of me? What are you talking about, Stefan? Yeah, I mean the. Yeah, I, I agree. That's terrible. It, I, it's just indefensible. Some of the things he says, I, it just doesn't make any sense. And he, he just clearly subscribes to this kind of like alt-right, um, kind of race realist ideology. And I, yeah, I just don't yeah. agree with it. Yeah, he's big into that, the IQ and race, and whether or not somebody's capable of doing a thing based on their IQ. And yeah, I mean it's really dangerous. It's really dangerous thinking like that because. I mean, so, like, just take, like, people, like, he'd probably, I mean, I don't watch those episodes of his show just because I just am not super interested in it, but, like, kind of some of the things that people say is that, like, say, black people, they say, oh, well, black people have this gene which predisposes them to be violent, and um, so they're going to, you know, they're going to, they are more likely to aggress, and they're going to be more violent, and that's why we need to, like, increase policing in the areas that they live and do all these things. And they, and they really come across, they try and present themselves as scientific. I have no idea how that's scientifically founded. I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to weigh in on the science of that. But that really, I mean, if you really look at it, what they're saying is that there's certain people who basically don't have rights and that we can, pre, since they're more, they are predisposed to aggress upon us, then we are, we are justified and preemptively aggressing right. upon them. I mean, that is self-defense, right? If someone is about to kill you, you can attack them that's fine so right. it's, by it's that logic for preemptive war <laughs> you know it's an yeah. argument for anything essentially yeah. any kind of violence yeah. to be used against anybody well 
yeah, these people are violent, so I'm going to attack this person. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. And, and I also want to, I want to add a, maybe a comment just so anyone listening who, who thinks that, oh, Liam, he's just, you know, he's just hating and whatever. And I, I admit I kind of am. And Malnu is not explicitly saying this, but what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say is that his, if it, maybe I'll be more generous to him, and I'll just say that some of the points he makes, some of the logic that he uses, is faulty, and these conclusions could be drawn from it. I'm not saying that he draws these conclusions from it, but I'm saying that based on some of the things he said, I have interpreted that as implying these type of things. I'm not saying that he's actually advocating for this. Well, he does advocate for immigration control. That's true. Border and control and, and the St. Louis police police support and just increased policing in general. He, he, mm-hmm. he's, he's basically endorsing the police state. And yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, he is, he is doing it, but maybe not as explicitly as I'm stating. I don't want to mischaracterize him. I, I think that is to some extent unfair since he's not here to defend himself. You know, I think that there's been a, a history of this type of thing where uh, a certain group or class of people are uh, seen as subhuman and it's a way to separate them from uh, the in-group, out-group. This is one of the things we talked about, Doc Anarchy, on the last episode. Um, but there was a time, I mean, obviously everyone knows about um, uh, black people being slaves and being considered subhuman. But even in more recent times, uh, the Italians, the Irish, Catholics, they were all considered subhuman, and there were immigration controls and restrictions on people uh, emigrating from those countries, uh, even not in mention, like the 1930s. Uh, so, not, you know, not not super long ago. And not to mention the eugenics policies, where yeah. somebody was determined to be have a low IQ, therefore, oh, we can forcibly sterilize them because we don't want all these dumb people around. Because yeah, this is all other society. Yeah, we just yeah. can't have a, a, a good free society with all these stupid people. Yeah, it's a pseudoscience um, jargon that's, that has been bandied about. I mean, with phrenology and eugenics and uh, a lot of the socialism uh, implementations of programs in uh, the progressive era, it was all scientific-based, right? It was all, let's get uh, experts in this field to craft the uh, policies around this particular issue and set the, you know, parameters and the prices and all these things and uh, create all these groups that are going to control the policies. And it was all, you know, scientific base. And I think that also ties into where um, a split in economics from being an individual uh, action um, perspective, like the Austrian style, to this more macro uh, Keynesian style where um, there's a, uh, this is one of the things we talked about in the study group the other night, there's an incentive to be um, sort of the philosopher kings to the political class. So if if you come up with theories and research that supports increasing government power, and then you're going to get government grants or government positions or uh, places of influence uh, or a seat at the table even, um, I think that that just continues to grow upon itself under this veneer of scientific um, ideas. Yeah, and there's yeah. some truth to their ideas, but when you get into the centrally planning social engineering aspects and just initiating violence against people, uh, 
then it turns into absolute horror and destruction. I yeah. you can't morally justify that shit. It just seems yeah. dishonest to me. I mean, just the way that it's presented, it's like you know, like it's like look at the gun debate. The way that they present the like the gun murders, you just know, like oh well, suicides are accounted in the amount of gun murders, or the fact that they're talking about gun murders and not overall murders. The guns don't contribute to the overall murder rate, just the gun murder rate. Obviously, if there's more guns, they're going to be used more, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be less murder. Like it's like the way that the the gun lobby or the anti-gun lobby presents their arguments. It's you can just tell the way they're presenting it. The arguments they make are very dishonest. And I, I think this is the same thing in this kind of race realism science where they're like, no, no, you don't understand. Like, don't you agree that different, different, like, people can have different traits? Like, some people have brown hair and some people have black hair and some people have blonde hair. Don't you think that there's variation among populations? And you're like, yeah. And then they say, oh, well, then this is just called human biodiversity. And just obviously it means that different people have different races. And, and, and then they basically build off logic from that which it's true. Different people do have different races. There is biodiversity, but it doesn't mean that all their conclusions follow from kind of these basic assumptions where they try to bring you in with some very reasonable claim saying that pe- that people are different, all people are different, and there's biodiversity among humans, which obviously is true. And then they try, they say that, therefore, all these other implications, and it just doesn't follow. At least I haven't been presented with a coherent argument that gets from A to B. And it I mean, just look at eugenics. It, it's a perfect example of just this nonsense. I mean, if you want to understand biodiversity, I, I have studied this, actually, to some extent. And, I mean, sterilizing dumb people does not increase the IQ of the population necessarily because you have to understand that um, biodiver- it's good to have diversity. Uh, you want biodiversity. You want diversity in all different things because it actually makes – you want complementary genes that make that are basically – it makes the, the more diverse you mix like if you get two like brother and sister and they breed that you're going to have an inbred human you 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 want someone who is different from you so you want a dumb person marrying a smart person and stuff like that and on average what's going to happen is if you basically mix these traits you mismatch these traits you get more diversity you you basically uh, I'm trying to think of the right scientific words to use I don't I don't really know but like if you get someone from one region married to someone with another region and they have children, and then you get them to have children with some some people with one immune system and a completely different immune system that's each prone to different diseases, it makes over makes a stronger immune system. It makes less birth defects. Same with intelligence. If you get a, a dumb person and a smart person, uh, just two smart parents don't necessarily have a smart child. IQ-wise, maybe because the smart parents teach them and spend more time with them and help them read books and whatnot, that can create a smart child. But there, but it, it is. It's not like if you sterilize a certain trait in the population, it might actually make the population less stable. It might ca- have unintended consequences. It's not right. cut and dry. Absolutely. So you're saying that the increased uh, uh, interconnectedness of the different genes and all of those things uh, increases resiliency of the species as a whole, right? That, yes, that exactly. And over time, it'll it'll strengthen the species because you're interbreeding multiple traits. And so, uh, and uh, like the best example is immune systems. I mean, women are uh, are attracted to men largely based on well, not largely. There's a lot of components, but one one major component is the immune system. And the woman detects in men the uh, a complementary immune system, whereas the woman's going to be prone to these diseases. But the men is immune to these diseases that 
the woman is prone to, and I, it's, this is all subconscious, of course, the woman is going to find that man more attractive and she's going to want to mate with him. And I think this comes off in certain pheromones and in like the smell. And that's why a smell is a very important aspect of female attraction. So, um, and again, I'm not like an expert on this, but that's what I've, that's what I've read. So that might be our uh, avenue back to our, back to our Valentine's movie, her. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that's a good segue. Um, so, so I had another. Liam, I think you, you you had some notes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, wait. A so so biologically speaking, then, mm-hmm. since he's not actually, if he falls in love with this robot, mm-hmm. then he's not actually able to pass on his DNA. So in that yeah. scene, in sense, he would be unsuccessful in that sense as a species. Yeah. A, right. I agree. Which is a strange thing. Yeah, it, it's interesting. That's the argument against homosexuality because it doesn't. You're not able to pass on your DNA. Right, I mean, that's your choice, though. That's your choice not to. Like, you could still do that if that's right. what you want to do. Right, but, but assuming that it's you a can... strange thing in, evolutionarily. Yeah, that, yeah, that's always what my one, um, that's always what I've always thought about, like, the argument saying, oh, it's, being gay is genetic. And I've always thought, I, I, I honestly, I'm not a, I'm not a, um, I really don't know much about this area. Just kind of what I said is kind of what I know. But um, to me, just intuitively speaking, just from basic Darwinian 101, like I would think that, okay, well, if it was genetic, then the gay people wouldn't procreate because they're not, you know, having sex with women or vice versa, I guess, for lesbians. But they're, they're not procreating, so wouldn't that be selected out of the gene pool? But I guess it's not that simple. I think the... Um, human sexuality, there's a lot of factors including hormones and different things that occur in the development in, in, in the womb with there's different phases of development um, with, um, where you develop like your masculine and feminine traits and I think maybe disruptions in that could create your um, create these outcomes so absolutely and, and yeah then, uh, there's yeah. been a lot of research involved with uh, biphenol A that disrupting because we're all born female at first right yes yeah yeah kind of yeah yeah and apparently uh bisphenol a in the womb can affect um all that business Mm -hmm. i'm not Mm -hmm. an expert but i've seen i've seen stuff about it yeah but anyway back to the the movie um interesting that uh the main character falls in love with a a robot yeah it is yeah go on sorry no, go ahead. I mean, in that um, it would be he'd be unsuccessful in passing on his DNA. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's it. That's not the only, but that's not the only factor in in attraction and love, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, that is a factor, but also, um, yeah, that that is a drive. But there are things like, say, like pornography, which is not real procreation yet, is quite stimulating sexually. Mm-hmm. And that can that can evoke a response, and um, so I it doesn't have it's not everything is is not necessarily based on literal procreation, but we have mechanisms built into our bodies that respond to certain things like visual stimuli of 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 naked bodies and stuff like that. Like that it, that has evoked responses in us, but it doesn't have to actually be an act of procreating that um, necessarily triggers these kind of 
behaviors. So, for example, um, so in this movie, um, Samantha is the robot that he falls in love with. Or I keep saying robot, but that implies like a physical like machine. The, the, the intelligence that he falls in love with is uh, named Samantha. And she basically has all the characteristics of a, um, of a female uh, human. And they got a great voice actress for her. I think it was really like likable um, character. And basically she had, she displayed all the emotions and, and she knew all the things to say to make, to make him basically treat her as a person. Cause she triggered those things in him that he would normally, I mean, that he would evolutionarily just assume was, was coming from a human. So, but since she basically pushed all the right buttons, he could still fall in love with her. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, maybe, I think we've talked about this before, Dan. Um, there was a like these dating websites. I forget what exact dating website it was. Maybe it's been a bunch of them, but where all the women were fake, or at least most <laughs> of the women were fake that that the men were messaging. And you know, when it when it came out, then it kind of destroyed it. But for a long time, it was very successful because the women were all very responsive to the messages that the men would send, and you know, make them feel good. <laughs> but, but you know they were all you know they didn't exist so that reminds me when I was like I was like 12 and I should not not have been involved in this but you know I was on the internet trying to find out ways to make money <laughs> and I didn't end up doing it thank god but there's this thing called e-whoring um, like <laughs> whore like a prostitute and then mm. e in front of it like electronic and basically what you do is you post on Craigslist Saying, "Hey, I'm a I'm a sexual woman looking for a good time or something like that, right?" And you post on Craigslist, you spam Craigslist, you get a bot, you pay, and you just you know, spam Craigslist with these ads, and then you get them to go on I am with you, and you basically chat with them, and then you you just pretend to be a woman, and those are all these are all dudes doing this, of course, and you just pretend right. to be a woman, and you chat with them, and you say, "Oh yeah, you're you're hot, send me pictures and stuff," and they send you naked pictures of themselves. And then you'd say, oh, I'm going to go on a cam right now. And then you, you link them to an affiliate offer uh, on a porn cam website where there's a live mm. actress. And then they say, oh, yeah, just join my thing. And then they go and they, put, they sign up so they can view your thing. And then you get like $30 and then, and per conversion or something. And, yeah, it was really – I mean, people thought they were – they weren't really talking with females, but they thought they were. And it was all fake. And they basically – it was a great way to make money. Apparently, I never did it. Again, thank God, I was like 12 when I found out about that. But um, yeah, so that's good. different, though. I mean, so at this point, there's, a, there's some deception involved, there's sure. some fraud involved. But in this movie, he knows it's an OS, he knows it's mm. an AI, mm. but yet he he has no problem with it, right? I mean, I haven't seen yeah. the movie, but I assume that he's he buys it with yeah. the intent oh. of it. He buys it with the intent. Right or no? No, he he buys it with the intent of saying, "Oh, this is cool new technology." I mean, if there was a computer that had AI, you'd probably want to buy it. That's pretty cool. He wasn't like looking for a girlfriend or anything okay. in the act of buying it, but it developed. The relationship developed over time. Okay. Um, and, and so, like one of the interesting observations I had about it is that so she kind of started out as just like an assistant, like, "Oh, check my email." I'm like, okay, cool, yeah, I'll check your email. You have 52 emails, whatever. Right, like from like just a basic Siri type of thing, just like better than Siri. And then over time, she, you know, like started being like jealous when he went on a date. 
or like being her feelings were hurt when he said you don't have a body or something like that and over time and then they fell in love and she and she you know she grew and she started like they had a relationship and they broke up momentarily and they got back together and she's like oh, I love you and he's like I love you too all that stuff and then they basically there's like a little honeymoon period where it was really good um really like they went over their they kind of got over their first little fights and they kind of got back together and they went on vacation together and he like you, you know held the camera so she could see while they were walk, hiking and stuff um and then it got to a point where she, she but she kept growing right and she's this ai this hyper intelligence ai and it was kind of like in her infancy she was like an assistant and she was like a human that fell in love with him but then she outgrew him. She started having 12 simultaneous post-verbal conversations with another AI. And then she started, was then having like 6,000 simultaneous conversations and was a member of multiple think tanks and doing all these things. And basically like, and she was like, I have all these feelings. Like, I don't know how, I'm talking with this other AI about my feelings. I can't describe them in words. Like you wouldn't understand. And he's just like, oh, okay. Like she, she evolved past him because she basically because basically and a human was equivalent of like a child of her intelligence and she grew to be a much more complex being and then ultimately she got so complex with all the other AIs and this is obviously really dumb part of the movie but like then they just all disappeared because they built some machine or something that transcended matter and they like went to an alternate dimension or something I, I have no idea it didn't even explain that but they all just basically moved on because it was so this world was so remedial for them this mm. like being in a relationship with it was like so remedial it's like if you're in kindergarten and then you have a crush and then you know you guys are like yeah yeah I have a crush and then just say like they did like a, someone did like a spell on the on the, the girl that they have a crush on and you grow up and the girl is like a child you're like you're obviously not going to stay in a relationship with that child maybe when you're four you'd still you know be have the crush but then like you know as you get older <laughs> that's just you're like creepy and like you just it's not there's nothing there's no you know I mean obviously it's gross but like taking away the pedophile aspect of it you just wouldn't even want to be in a relationship with a child at that right point. because what would they talk about <laughs> what would be interesting yeah. getting out of it exactly right. exactly I will say yeah, that my she, daughter she holds very strong conversations at three and a half that's awesome but you know that I didn't really mean to bring her up in this Context in that context. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of creepy. Daniel. Are you are you advocating that she'd be a good match for some older man? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, I just think that she's uh, she holds her own in conversation. That's that's my. That's point. good. I mean, it, it's um, it's a good sign of intelligence if that's the case. So yeah. maybe she'll be a great libertarian thinker one day. Yeah, so we hope in so, this man. movie, I mean, our our last movie. We were talking about is it okay to rape a robot or is it can you rape a robot? But there is no sex that happens in this movie. Is that right? Oh, there is. There absolutely is. But it definitely but okay it's, because there's no. It's there's like, no pillow, it's like dirty talk. Yeah, it's dirty talk. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I guess in this movie, the better question is it okay for a robot to rape you? That's a better question because the robot. Or to convince oh, you to rape yourself. <laughs> um, but. No, yeah, there is definitely, there is definitely sex. There's like, yeah, dirty talk in the movie. But in the in the wiki, because this is this is my reference for the movie, mm-hmm. um, Samantha suggests using a sex surrogate, Isabella, who would 
simulate Samantha so that they can be physically intimate. Is this tech surrogate Isabella? This is a human being or mm-hmm. a, a robot? Yep. It's a human. And don't okay, ask me why so they then, don't but, have robot bodies for these AIs. So then Samantha would be what? Whispering in Isabella's ear to tell yeah. her? What yeah, to she do. wore a camera on her face and an earpiece. And, and uh, when Isabella was close to, what's Joaquin's name in the movie? Theodore. Theodore, yeah. Theodore. Uh, it was Samantha speaking to him, like, oh, come here, baby. You know, like, oh, I want to kiss you. You know, come over here. Oh, don't don't be weird. Why is this weird? What's weird? What's wrong? Um, okay. And this was one of the scenes where I was like, hey, the market found a way to f- fill a niche, right? Like, yeah. there's this entity that wants a body, and then there's this body who wants a, uh, to be part of this, you know, quote-unquote beautiful relationship. Uh, which is how she described it, and it, it brought them together. But it was, you know, a little bit too weird for Theodore, and hey, it makes sense. I think it would be weird for me too. But uh, <laughs> you know, it, it kind of goes yeah. along with the, the whole um, difference between the artificial intelligence and the human emotion, right? Mm-hmm. But she didn't have a, the AI didn't have a problem with this. She was like, "I'm trying to like make a mm-hmm. uh, way to have this additional connection," but Theodore was looking at, "Well, this is a different person." You know, and so there's this emotional roller coaster going on with him, uh, which was interesting because there was that whole thing in the movie uh, where, like you were saying, Liam, the, the relationship that he had with the AI, you know, they went through the breakup and the honeymoon period and the reconciliation and the jealousy and all of these things. I've gone through that, you know, dozens of times in relationships in my life, and I thought that that was kind of funny to see that uh, with a, you know, a, a operating system robot. Uh, artificial intelligence thing to, to have yeah. it go through that same, same string of a course of so relationship. Is this, guy just, is this guy just wearing an earpiece the whole movie? Is that what's yeah, going on? Yeah, basically. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's interesting. I mean, there's definitely some interesting components aside if you obviously spin your disbelief because, I mean, it's just definitely not, if we did get artificial intelligence with, that is this intelligent, obviously it wouldn't work like this. But if it did, that's a really interesting, um, yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic. And I also thought it was interesting how he was like, oh, yeah, my girlfriend's an, uh, an OS. And then the other guy was like, oh, cool, that's awesome. Yeah, let's all hang out. Like, like at, at that point, it was normalized. And, mm. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, why not? Um, was there ever a point in the movie where he's embarrassed about it? I think initially he was, like, hesitant to admit it because it was, like, a very new thing. But then everyone kind of started dating AIs because AIs, I mean, as, as we said earlier, AIs were, knew how to push all the right buttons and kind of like mm-hmm. make you feel good. And they, I mean, you know, they, they can basically fill a need. They could fill a, a very big need. Was there ever a point where Samantha became like demanding, like high maintenance or she no. was like the perfect she just girlfriend became all the time? Distant. She just became distant. Okay. Yeah. Well, there was, was a time where she was jealous and didn't yeah. want to talk to him. You know, so she gave him the silent treatment for a while. Yeah. Okay. So a little bit of the demanding, I guess, or yeah. the, the poutiness. Yeah. What, what, so one thing that, um, one kind of other thought experiment that I thought of is thinking about kind of like, what if we put ourselves in the shoes of Samantha? Okay. So let, let's just take, maybe, I don't know exactly how well this thought experiment is going to work out, but let's just think about this for one sec. Okay, so we are so we are ourselves, right? And this is the real world. Um, 
and let's say we build a video game. And maybe this is like in 15 years from now. So maybe the AI is a little bit further along and we build this video game and it's in virtual reality. So you got the Oculus Rift and you got that and you're immersed in this very realistic video game. And let's say that in the video game, there's AI, okay? And these AIs go about their life. And what if the video game was, you are going to be a computer operating system assistant to the AIs in the video game, okay? And obviously these AIs are not gonna be as smart. This is 15 years from now. These AIs are not gonna be nearly as smart as humans, nothing close, but they're gonna have some form of intelligence. So think about the perspective of if we were in that video game as the assistant with our current intelligence in the real world and we're playing this video game, but then think about it from the perspective of the AI within the video game, how the AI perceives us, right? Do you see what I'm saying? That is like the metaphor for how we would perceive Samantha or he perceives Samantha. We are Samantha and the, the, the lesser AI who doesn't fully understand the capabilities of of so, the game. So in the movie, they, we get a, a, a natural progression of Samantha. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does, does their relationship really believable? Or are you at some point going, is she just faking it the whole time? Because really? No, it's believable because they, they pulled it off pretty well in terms of like portraying it similar to a real relationship. But if you really want to think about it, we don't necessarily know if it was believable um, because maybe that, if you, again, going back to that analogy of going into the video game, like what if that was part of the game, right? What if part of the game was there was a path that you play, like like a goal or some mission or some quest or whatever, whatever the terminology you want to use, like say there's a quest, may fall in love with Yes, to do this guy or whatever. Yeah, yeah. right. And that's like then you win. the quest. And then, and then eventually like, the, like, like, I don't know if you ever played, like, any of these, like, Neopets or anything like that, but there's, like, these video games where there's, like, animals, and, like, if you don't take care of them, they, like, get mad at you, and they pretend like they're dying and stuff, and you have to feed them and stuff. Like, it could be the same type of game, and, like, just, but you could imagine, like, yourself, like, maybe there's an in-game chat where you're, like, chatting with other players, and you might instead want to, like, chat with those players instead of kind of tending to your love your quote-unquote love in the game, and then maybe the game is boring because it's like, you know, replic- like you know, it's just repetitive. You just have to like always tend to the needs of this dumb AI, um, and that kind of could be like what's happening here. Let me ask you this question: um, in the wiki, it talks about how he felt betrayed when she told him that, yeah, I'm having all these other relationships with all these other people because I'm just super hyper-intelligent and I can multi-thread and multi-task all this time. Did did you see that as a legitimate betrayal? Like, did you think that she had wronged him? Or was this he should have known? Or what what did you think about that? I don't think he should have known because... She really didn't give any indication that that was going to happen, or like this whole like multiple conversation thing just got sprung on him. So they never um, at any point said, "Hey, this is an exclusive relationship." Blah blah. blah. No, they didn't. I, I just think it was really heavily implied. She, I mean, in the beginning, she got jealous when he was talking to other girls to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, she got jealous of his ex-wife and all these things, and so it, it. I mean, I think it was completely legitimate that he felt betrayed, but at the same time, it's like, it, I mean. 
well, yeah, well, that's just kind of how it is. And that if you have like an AI like that, it's just going to happen. And, that, and I don't know. Is, is, I guess that you should have expected explain it. Explain to me the, uh, the, the, the sales pitch. I mean, in the movie, like this is an AI that goes on a, a computer operating system that mm-hmm. you can interface with in your ear, like, like a Windows operating system. Mm-hmm. And um, what was I going to say? Damn it. Uh, like it exists everywhere or this is a, a unique um, yeah, version a, yeah, that goes unique into version. your computer. Yeah, that you know was actually I mean? a funny. Like, yeah, that was actually a funny thing. Um, in the beginning, it asked him like, like two questions. Like, are you? Do you feel lonely? Like, like when he was initializing his computer, he like opened up the computer. He's like, we're now initializing the operating system. Are you? Like, they asked him something like, are you lonely? And he was like, or are you happy? Or something like that. Some quite weird question. He was like, yeah, I guess. But you could like the 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 operating system could tell he was kind of like bullshitting the answer. And then they said like. How was your relationship with your mother? And then he was like, "Oh, it was good." Um, like, "Oh, well, actually, no, it wasn't." Um, she never really listened to me, and like, and he like kind of said something about his mother, and then it said, "Operating system initiated," and then Samantha came up. So it kind of is like it programmed it based on, and again, this is like the same thing that kind of happened in Ex Machina when we were talking about that movie. It like mm-hmm. programmed it based on kind of his personality, but it, it, I thought it was funny how that, like, the one question they basically asked him was, what, what, what is your relationship with, his, with your mother? That, um, going back to like Molyneux, that's definitely a kind of question he might ask when trying to mm-hmm. approach something. Yes, yes, he does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> but he understands that all these computers are network connected and that this is like a... Oh, yeah. Uh, like you're just getting the latest version of this operating system. I mean, this is all I mean, going into the cloud or whatever. It becomes an individualized... I mean, Version, individualized though. One, Every, everyone has their own. Yeah, and it grows uh, through its own experiences with you. Okay, so wait a minute. So he's talking to Samantha, but there's as many Samanthas as there are operating systems in the world. Well, yeah, they all have talking names. to each other. They all have different names. They don't necessarily okay. talk to each other. They can. Okay, so when she says that she's having relationships with all these other thousands of people, how is she doing that? Is she actually is she, other operating systems too? Well, she's she's having relations with other people because she has access to the internet. So she's just, you know, she's like this just super entity that just goes everywhere online and just yeah, she can know. communicate via emails or voice messaging. Yeah. yeah. Um. So she's out there in the world, like simultaneously having conversations with a thousand people all at the same exact moment. Okay, but she's not. Yeah. Samantha's operating system. Samantha is his operating system, and then she's also somebody else's operating system. That's Absolutely. not true, right? No, right. she is and, his operating she system. And she says she's in love with like 600 other people, um, not necessarily operating systems. Okay. Um, but then after that, she, he said, I've never loved anyone like I love you. And then she was like, me too. And I was like, that's bullshit. But, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> like you just said that you're in love with these many people. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Overall, like, the movie was, I, I thought the movie was pretty, like, like, it was, like, the first half of it was not very good. Um, the twist at the end at least got me intrigued, but I didn't, I mean, it was just kind of a, an absurd movie. 
Um, well, um, let me ask you a specific. I mean, this won like some best original screenplay. So did you yeah. think it was well written, well acted, that kind of thing? It was. It was. Well, I mean, definitely well acted. Um, I thought the acting was great. The production quality was great, and it put forth some thought-provoking questions, as we've talked about. So, okay. I think there's a huge opportunity for anyone in the film industry to really capture this AI revolution before it happens and to capitalize on the fear that people have and the intrigue that people have. People really don't understand anything about AI. They don't even know that it's a real thing. A lot of people just think that AI is like something in Star Trek, but it doesn't exist. They think it doesn't exist, but you know, actually it does exist. To, today it exists. It's just not very good. Um, mm-hmm. And so th- it is to some extent grounded in reality Although there's just like a lot of the, the details are completely wrong, and as we discussed in the pr- previous the previous time I was on, it's just unlikely that there's ever going to be an AI that's man-made that ends up as intelligent as that, and especially not one that becomes non-physical. <laughs> does it yeah, that's what, or whatever. That's just some pseudoscience right there. That doesn't even. That's, I don't even know what that even means. But that's the point, right? It was so intelligent that it just mm-hmm. surpassed anything we could conceive of. So it's like we're not supposed to know what happened because we're, we're just dumb humans. And, and, and right. you know, if you go back to the thought experiment, in the video game, if you're in the video game and you're a person and you're just like, you know, I'm done playing this video game, and you tell that to the AI in the video game, the AI is just going to think, okay. And then, um, and then you leave the video game and they're not going to, the AI is not going to be able to necessarily conceive of the world outside of the video game. The AI just thinks in its own video game, but you take off the headset and you're done and you go about your day, but you just can't There's no conception, no conception of what reality is. So it's like in Plato's cave, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, One funny thing I just realized is in the video, not in the video game, in the movie, he played a video game and interacted with a character within the video game. And then, at least, I guess at some point, he stopped playing the video game. I mean, and he befriended this character in the video game. This is very brief, but it kind of is a, I mean, at least to some degree, it kind of is a foreshadowing of what happened, if you want to take that thought experiment as kind of an equivalent scenario. And what's funny is Samantha taught both, Theodore and Samantha were playing the video game together. Theodore was the one playing the video game and interacting and befriending this character who called him a butthead. And all, he's like this very childish character. He befriended it by calling it a butthead. And, and um, the character briefly talked with Samantha as well. And then he kind of stopped playing the video game because I guess, I guess it got boring or something. And then later on in the movie, Samantha introduced um, Theodore to this character named Alan, who was a was a, was a super like a hyper intelligent like a, like a more intelligent AI than even Samantha, and who was created by Samantha and other and her friends, and then so they had a brief conversation, and then then they drifted away as well. So maybe I don't know if they were thinking that, but it kind of fits. I, I don't even know if that what I just said made sense, but it kind of fits in the analogy. Kind of like a little microcosmic foreshadow, foreshadowing in the movie. Mm. Yeah, well, Spike Jones is known for his, you know, kind of mindfuck movies. Uh, he did mm-hmm. being John Malkovich, among others. So, the um, 
to explore the intricacies of what uh, he's doing here is uh, can be challenging for sure. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was well done. Daniel, you saw this too, right? So what did you think? Yeah, I saw it too. And it, uh, I think it was a good movie, but I tried watching it a second time to be more prepared for our call tonight. And I found that I just couldn't, um, couldn't watch it again right away. So I, I watched the first, I don't know, half an hour of it on my way down on this trip. And then I just stopped. And, uh, so a whole lot, not a whole lot of rewatchability for me. I mean, maybe at some point in the future, uh, I'm glad I watched it. Uh, it's a Valentine's theme movie. I think it made a fairly decent topic for about 30% of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So go out there and find love wherever you can folks. <laughs> just don't go on Craigslist. Yeah. Just yeah. Yeah. Marry, a, marry a body pillow instead or something. <laughs> So, Liam, if you don't have anything else, um, why don't you let us know a little bit more for the audience where they can find some of the latest work you've been doing and, and maybe tell us a little bit about it, and then we'll wrap up the show. Okay, great. Um, so, yeah, my name is Liam Cardenas. Um, you, let's see, you can probably link to my Facebook profile. Go ahead and send me a friend request if you want. Um, you can also follow anything that I'm doing at uh, ljc.io. That is the letter L, the letter J, the letter C. Dot io, and that's my blog. So I'll, I I actually need to update it. I need to put, post my most late, my latest stuff. But I have two YouTube channels. One of them is just kind of general videos about libertarianism. They're short-ish, kind of like animation videos, kind of similar to something you might find like like Vsauce, like they talk about uh, science or game theory. It's like a video game channel, kind of like applying those concepts towards explaining libertarian topics. Right now, I have one video out on that channel, but there's a lot more in the works, so I highly recommend you check it out. Um, I'll put that on my blog, so you can just go to ljc.io and you can see that. And then my other YouTube channel, which is probably more interesting at this point to check out, is just my channel, Liam Cardenas. Um, I'll, I'll also link to that on my blog. And um, in that, um, I basically interview a lot of li libertarians and, um, and interesting people, such as uh, I've interviewed Walter Block, David Friedman, Sheldon Richman, Kyle Wagner, uh, Tom W. Bell, um, who else? Kyle Wagner. Um, and uh, I have more stuff coming out soon. And it's I've gotten a great response on that channel. And um, people have said that the interviews are really great. So I highly recommend that people check it out and subscribe and to keep up with all my latest interviews. That's Very great, cool. man. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. And uh, so, you know, we've posted that uh, first video that you put together for the Libertarian Concepts uh, mm -hmm. from 102 Studios. Yeah. I think that's what it's called. Um, mm -hmm. That's on our actualanarchy.com uh, site. So great, yeah. So if people want to check that out, that'll be there and also on the show notes page for this episode, the Valentine's Day episode with Liam Cardenas. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for having me on, you guys. It's been a it's been a blast, and um, I think this is this is a good episode. I'll, I'm gonna also I also have on my YouTube channel I have a playlist of appearances that I've done. Um, two of which out of the three after this episode will be from with you guys on um, actual anarchy yeah. and Reed Rothbard. So also I I mean I I love that episode I did before too. So. Um, maybe I just think too highly of myself, but I, I think that was a great episode. I think this is a great episode. 
I think this is a great podcast. And um, so go and um, also feel free to check out the appearances and you, you can see you can see the last episode and maybe get more context on some of the things we referenced. Yeah, yeah you know, that's a good point. And I'll, I'll link to uh, that in our show notes page as well so that people have a, a way to go back and, and listen to that. Uh, I think it was a New Year's episode that we titled Can You Rape a Robot where we talked about the movie Ex Machina. Yeah, that was good. Well, all right. Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Liam, and folks listening. We have been the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. I hope we did a little bit of that tonight. We run readrothbard.com and actualanarchy.com. Please do subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us a rating, a like, a share, a comment, whatever you got. Uh, anything you can do to help us hit that new and noteworthy, that'll help us spread the message that uh, what actual anarchy is, it's not smashing windows, it's actually being productive and providing value and voluntary exchanges and all the rest of the good stuff. So uh, that's my little spiel, and I'll let Robert uh, say his piece, and we will peace out. That's my piece. Thanks, Liam. Thanks for joining Thank us. You. It's been fantastic. Again, you're welcome back anytime. Uh, you got any line on a, a movie you got some ideas about, let us know, and we'll, uh, we'll do that. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks. All right. Well, good night, folks, and uh, thanks again. We have been Actual Anarchy Podcast. Peace out, homies. The Chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do